0: a brief unintentional hiatus but we're back with a bang this is such a special episode to me because it is the first time that i've interviewed someone who i actually know and also i'm interviewing someone who has had just such an impact on my life and i think the lives of a lot of kids at the high school that i attended and graduated from which is Beacon High School. I'm gonna give some context to kind of my relationship with Mr. Moscow so that this interview isn't terribly confusing. So when I was in my sophomore year, I took Mr. Moscow's global history class. I don't know what my life would look like now if not for Mr. Moscow and for my whole sophomore year, which was first of all online, so yeah. And second of all, it was the first year where I really started to kind of discover intellectual curiosity so i really did just start to discover like a love for learning and i also started to discover that i had a natural inclination towards interviewing so i had to do an english project where i made a podcast and that was also my sophomore year and that was super key in realizing that i could do this and Just learning fundamental tools of you know how to edit a podcast and then also i really kind of took off with this idea when i had mr moscow's class and was interviewing a expert on marxism for a history project that we had to do that was not necessarily it didn't have a podcasting component but i ended up doing podcasting as sort of an extra credit thing cuz Mr. Moscow if you've had him you know he gives a lot of extra credit opportunities throughout the school year and you really can take advantage of however little or however much extra credit you want which is one of the things I always appreciated about his classes so then I did that interview and I realized that people were actually very open to talking to me someone who is not an expert and I realized that I did have questions to ask and you know if you have questions to ask then go for it why not is kind of my philosophy so He's also really, really gotten me into reading. I think, again, it's a combination of it was just the right time. I had a lot of time on my hands to just start reading again in sophomore year, but also Mr. Moscow constantly urging people to read more. So I am going on a little bit of a tangent, but I know for a fact that Mr. Moscow has made such a tremendous impact on my life, and I'm not alone in this. So as for this episode, I had him... Uh, Once in my sophomore year was not chosen, but I had them for the full year and then again in my senior year We have half year long classes of history So I took two history classes my senior year and we got to pick those two classes. One of them I took my first semester was International political economy with Mr. Moscow and so you will hear me referring to both International political economy, which is a class I took my senior year And also Global History, which was a class I took my sophomore year. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I wanted to explain quickly was that in our school, we also have New York Times front page quizzes, which you'll hear us talk about New York Times, just to show that you have been reading the front page to kind of establish a habit. And so that's what we mean when we talk about that. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was very, very surreal for me to do this and such a cool experience that I will always be grateful for. I remember when I was in sophomore year, you said you had like a teaching philosophy, and I don't know if you remember what you said, but I definitely do. Do you think you know?
1: I, mean, I think I do. So let's see. I who I knows what I said to you in sophomore year, but let's see. I think I said that a history teacher should get kids to try to read the newspaper and should get people to vote or participate in the democratic process in some way or another. In other words, like to know what's going on in the world and to sort of act on that information. Did I get it correct?
0: So I, I remember, and again, like this is my memory, so I could be wrong too, but I remember the news was the big one. And I think that's like a thing that we do at our school in general. And also reading just books in general was the other big one. So with your extra credit, do you want to talk about that? Because I always found that very interesting and helpful as a student.
1: Yeah, so I, I do try to structure my classes so that uh, kids get extra credit. in fact they get as much extra credit as they as they want. By reading books, you know whole books, I try to pick in 10th grade, which is a, a global global history class. I try to pick historical fiction, just because I love it so much, and I think it's a great way to learn history in you know, 12th grade economics political economy, not as much of that. Um, but I try to pick fun books. My sense, you, you know, you as a young person can tell me, but my sense, if your generation, anything like my generation, you know, people aren't reading all that much anymore. And what they are reading is fragmented. They surf the web, get it from their social media. So this, yeah, it's called surfing for a reason, right? Like there's not a lot of depth there when you read like that. Um and there's something about sticking with an author for a book through their whole argument. I I tend to think that we can talk about it if we want, that um, the 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 medium is very important. So like actually reading physical books that matter, and um there's a, a guy named Marshall McLuhan pretty important and another guy named Neil Postman, who both been really influential in, in terms of my thinking about this, about why the medium, you know, matters so much. So I, I do try to encourage kids to to go to our library. We have, you know, we had all these books from over the years that we have collected that Kids actually try to and actually you know take the book home with them, read on a subway, but read read actual books. Think with, Again, we can talk about it more if you want. I think I think it changes the brain, it does something to the mind. And it's I think it's very positive for the individual. And I think maybe for the for the larger for society as well.
0: I have a couple different things to talk about there. So I was gonna talk about the news more and media. Do you see reading as an extension of media or do you see it as like a separate thing? Like news media.
1: Oh, right. Okay. So I think when we talk about media, we want to think about, and and maybe it's like a different way of thinking about it, but I think it it goes back to McLuhan and Postman. We want to be thinking about, let's say we take the news and watch the news on the television. Their argument, I think my argument too, would be that it can be the same story. It can actually be the same text, like a, you know, a newscaster can be reading the same text over the broadcast that you could read in the newspaper, but that would actually have a different impact both on the way you perceive the news and on society. So in other words, yes, we're talking about media, we're talking about the news, but how, you, what, which medium you consume the news in is very, very important. So... Reading a physical newspaper is going to be different than getting your news from the television, as television is mainly a visual medium, and so it's got to things have got to move. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, what is the when you watch the evening news? What is on the evening news?
0: Well, it's a lot of breaking news, flash flood. It's very much a negative they're making everything seem like a great big emergency type of thing
1: right the floods that's great the news what else is good for the for the tv news
0: i don't know i don't know what you're getting at here
1: well no I was, when i watch tv news which is actually not, now, not that often but i used to watch a lot you know it's it's ambulance lights burning buildings it's the it's sports it's the weather every time they give us a weather update mm-hmm. and, and they show the weather moving across the country so, in terms of, and if it's politics, you know, it's, it's fast, it's sound bites. That works for a visual medium. It's not a coincidence that a textual medium like a newspaper is going to deliver the news in a different way, and, and the, the news will be different that they present. And I think that will give us a different type of politics, a different type of society. So again, Postman writes this wonderful book that we read in I read in ninth grade. It was the first postman book that I read. And it was called How to Watch TV News. And I highly recommend it. He makes that point over and over again that um it, it, you know, I don't know if you know what C SPAN is, but it's a it's a cable channel which was started by funded by lots of other cable networks because they had to show that they were basically doing something good for the public. Nobody watches C-SPAN, you know, except political junkies. And there is this show on C-SPAN, which is obviously, like, really boring, is a guy just reading the New York Times. It, it doesn't work very well for for that medium.
0: I mean, that reminds me of this thing also, even in just reading it. I know this isn't the point, but... In just reading the news, you can kind of put, like, when you're learning grammar, you'll do an exercise where you place the emphasis on different words of a sentence, and that like changes the whole meaning of the sentence. But can you differentiate between reading a newspaper and reading a book?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, um, are you thinking about nonfiction, for example? So like a a book about politics? Yeah, I think that, well, I, I tend to think of history books as being, news that happened with the past. So in that way, you know, they're they're kind of similar. I do think that there is a tremendous amount of pressure on newspapers to a couple of things. One, get the news out obviously uh, very quickly. So sometimes I think we don't understand the events as they're unfolding very well. And that's a limitation of, of newspapers. I think that Newspapers have a, you know, it goes back to, to Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent, where they say there is an ideological component of newspapers because, you know, it's, it's invisible, but, or almost invisible, but they've got to sell newspapers, but also keep advertisers happy. And so, you know, we wouldn't have Noam Chomsky on the editorial page of the New York Times because I think that it would ruffle feathers with, with businesses and advertisers. And that's not so much a concern with books. And that brings us to, I think, another point that I think is really important, is that books are the last refuge in a society that's inundated with advertising. It's literally the only place you can go that where there's no ads. Obviously, there's ads on the radio, there's ads on TV, <laughs> clearly, there's clearly ads on the internet. And I think that's important because and I was just listening to you and I both really like the economic historian at the twos. I was just listening to the most recent edition of their, their podcast. It's a great podcast, Ones and Twos. but you know, they're talking about the foreign policy of Israel and the way that Israel treats Palestinians, and it was a very serious conversation. And then like a second later the co-host is talking about some food delivery system that Americans love to eat. And I I do think that what that does is it not only distracts, but it supposes that the content is of the same worth of value that what they're talking about with Israel-Palestine is equivalent to what kind of food box you should get. And I think, again, that makes it hard to have serious conversations. So I, I think that that's another limitation
0: I remember you also saying in sophomore year that especially on Kindle which already has some advertisements that there'd be ads in the middle of books.
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't I don't know which of the e-readers though it could be all of them at this point are also you know very interested in tracking what you're reading, when you stop in a book, at what point. And that seems like uh, a problem of you know, a privacy for me, but also you know more modification of, of information and my and my personal information, which is you know, not that exciting for me.
0: So my other question in relation to the media, I this summer, I was very news oriented over the school year. And I still like keep up with the news a little bit. But I have stopped really reading the news a lot. And sure, I, I will get it from my mom. And I still read books. I've been reading lots of books and nonfiction books as well. But I found also that it's been a little bit refreshing for me to not have a constant stream of like negative things, mainly negative things, like coming at, at me every day. And so I wonder if you could talk about weighing the depressing effects of news against the need to read it and keep up with everyone around you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, especially in the summer when I have a chance I like to, to read as much fiction as possible. And um, I, I find myself giving, you know, people talk about like doom, doom scrolling on, on their phone. I, I don't have social media, but I do that with, you know, the Times app, with, with Financial Times and the Guardian, which are three papers that I read. Um, and I, I, I got to stop doing it because I, yeah, I don't feel great while I do it. And I, I think that if we... If you live in a healthy, robust democracy where you're expected to participate in the civic life, then then you have to read the newspaper. If you live in a democracy like ours, which is both fragile and incomplete, and for most of us, for most issues, you know it's just out of reach, and and the place where it's most out of reach is at the you know at the federal level and certainly at the international level. So yeah, I, I do grapple with the question of whether it makes sense for kids to even be reading the newspaper because if you're going to have a democracy where, where it's kind of a democracy light and people are spectators, then it's sort of like you know following basketball. It can be interesting or entertaining, but if you don't actually have any access to democracy um, or if the access is very difficult, to achieve, then it can lead people to feel like there's just lots of bad news and there's nothing we can do about it. So, you know, I had a friend who, I have a friend who worked for a a major U.S. newspaper, and it just, you know, says like it very, it was very difficult for him to pitch stories to his editor, which were about happy things, about good news. Um, I think there's there's a bias towards, um. Towards negativity, and yeah, I I I think that's not real healthy.
0: And you know, I do think that that's what will sell more newspapers. Probably is focusing on depressing things because you know you can kind of fear monger.
1: I think you may be right, but I think that's worth it's worth exploring. In other words, it would be really neat. There's a small magazine called Yes Magazine, which is only positive stories. It'd be really neat if. Uh, if someone could do a, you know, some research on, you know, what are the most, you know, I don't know, read or emailed or forwarded stories out there. I, I wonder if it's really the most negative, um, but, but that would be, I'd be fascinated. I'd be curious. I mean, right, something
0: that that made me think of kind of to counter my own point. I have TikTok. I don't use it to post things. I just scroll, doom scrolling there. But mm-hmm. the algorithm has figured out that I really like seeing puppies. And Mm -hmm. so 90% of my TikTok feed is just like puppies falling on each other. It's really positive, honestly. And I know that when actually when the January 6th stuff was happening, it was a terrible, I like could not go on TikTok. because It was seeing that I was watching those videos, but somehow I kind of beat that. And now we're back to puppies. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that is what has gotten me the most engaged on TikTok. So I don't know.
1: Mm -hmm. That would be interesting.
0: So also, I want to talk about local news. Um, and I know there's not a ton of really good local news stories, but I guess, have you ever thought about, like, finding local newspaper and making students read that instead?
1: Well, the last thing I read every night before I go to bed is on my phone, is Gothamist, um, which is run by WNYC. And, you know, it's, it's New York news. It's, I love it. And at the bottom of, you know, every... Every day they give you a a video, of the equivalent of like puppies falling all over. It's always animal videos. And that's a nice way to end the day. But I think so. Gothamist, I really appreciate. I love I love reading when the New York Times has strong metro section. That was great to read too. Um, but yeah, I think it's a real it's a real problem that the New York Times has turned into a uh, you know a national newspaper. It really has made an effort to do that. And at this point, there aren't i mean new york is a little different because you know we have to post with the daily news but if you go to a place like some of my family lives in salt lake and you go to salt lake and you know they used to have a morning afternoon edition a couple papers and now you go to buy the paper and it's basically you know a shell and inside are ap stories so they buy ap stories but they don't have many local reporters at all and this is true we go, you know, most places in the country and I think the, the really scary aspect of it is I think the, the best, the best thing that newspapers do is they, they, they use their resources to uncover corruption. And at the local level, when you don't have many newspapers, corruption, you know, and there's, there's now lots of, unfortunately, lots of studies which confirm this lot. It's, it's, it's a way for corruption to flourish. And I don't know what you do about it, except because clearly local news has not been profitable. You you may have to figure out a way to take sort of the profit motive out of local news. And I, I would say you might want to think about doing that with all news. Um, and there's a lot of ways you could do it so that it's not government funded, because, you know, clearly you don't want profit. You don't want a, a government finance. Um you know, although, you know, BBC does a pretty good job, um, I guess. But I think there are some innovative ways that um, you could you could you could sort of remove profit and and that would um, solve a lot of our problems.
0: I mean, do you think that as of right now, the media has become too intertwined with the federal government? Because to me, it also seems like a big part of the problem is the, the line between the media and politics is blurring. Well,
1: I think there's a lot of a lot of people have written um, interesting stuff about this. You know, one book that I'm thinking about is called something like you can look it up, like the Chicken Shit Club, but it's it, it's actually um, about it's I think the guy won a Pulitzer, um, but it's about the reason that white collar criminals don't get prosecuted very often. And one of the points that he makes is that. Many of these people who are working in, in white collar industry, I mean, he uses the MMV financial crisis as his big case study, but many people who are working in these industries you know, actually grow up, go to school, and send their kids to the same school as people who are in journalism and who are working in the DA's office, and that you have a sort of a layer, a social class, which is very intimately bound together. What I think is, is a problem is that the worldview and assumptions of people who are going into journalism today are closely mirror that of people who are in government or in big business. And that, you know, it, it, there was a time in American history where journalism was a, a profession, an avenue for working class people. That is no longer possible. You are not going to become a journalist for any big newspaper not having a college degree. Um that used to be possible. So I think social class matters a whole lot. I do think there's the, the challenge for, for journalists in, in trying to keep their sources happy and keep their sources closed. I think that's probably always been a problem. I don't I don't know that it it's sort of it's sort of worse today. So
0: this is not related to media but it's about books so I wanted to ask you two questions about books one of them is very Ezra Klein so books that you'd (laughs) like recommend across the board and I don't do this because I don't want to copy Ezra Klein but (laughs) I do feel like you have so many book recommendations you give so many book recommendations so if you could just narrow it down to some that you think are crucial to read for someone who wants to think more deeply I
1: would say. Yeah. One book that I've been recommending to lots of, lots of friends is a book called Elite Capture by uh, Olifemi Uh He's a philosopher. Uh, he's a professor of philosophy, and he's a philosopher at Georgetown. And um, I think it's a book that really helps explain, explain a lot of what's going on in the world from um, the gamification of our culture to what racial capitalism is to um, how it capture politics. Um, and I, I I recommend it because I I think Tyrone is, is really smart, and it's also kind of an easy read. Um, I think it's a couple hundred pages, and you could, you could probably read it in, in a few days. Um it's so what I like about him is that he takes really complicated ideas and Simplifies them. And for me, maybe it's because I'm just like not that smart and I'm not being like falsely humble here. Like I really have a hard time with academic texts. I I don't I don't understand most of it. It's why I've never really been all that into Marxism because most of you know post Marxist most Marxist writers are are hard to read. And I feel like that, that's purposeful, right? It's sort of like if you can have this secret language. In academics, across the board do it. You can have a secret language for you can justify your your life, why you're an academic, why you get the privileges you have. It's part of the reason that, and I'm not always very successful at it, but part of the reason why I feel that I really like teaching political economy class is the goal really is for me to simplify and put into plain English a lot of stuff that's needlessly, needlessly complicated. So I really like Taiwan for that reason. I really... I, I really like Neil Postman as I as I said before, and I would recommend that people you know maybe start with a book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death," because I think to to kind of go back to the question. Um, now I was thinking about this as you were asking about the problem of, of politicians being too close to journalists, and this is depressing. But I more and more I think that you, you know Postman's argument is. The problem is not 1984 and censorship. The problem is that people have access to books, but no one needs to ban them because nobody wants to read any. And I so that's the theme of amusing ourselves to death. And I don't know on a larger level what any individual can do about that. You know, we have I have a daughter who's two now. She about to be two, and we are trying to keep her away from all schools for as long as possible. She doesn't know what poor girl, She doesn't know what cartoons are. She doesn't know. She doesn't know anything. Um, and we're you know we're trying to give her keep her world like a a text based world. uh don't know picture books and stuff, but real you know real books. Um, but the the tide is very much, you know, not in our favor, and I don't, I don't know that how long we'll be able to sustain this. But again, it does nothing about the, the society-wide question of people um, being being overly interested and distracted by by superficial things.
0: Those superficial things are engineered that way. Like they're engineered to make your brain want more and more of them.
1: I think so. Um, you know, Postman's writing before the internet, and he's, he's really writing about the television age. But everything he's saying about television is just so much more true with the internet. I don't know. And again, this goes back to the medium being the message. I don't know that the medium... I don't know that you can make better content on the phone, on the smartphone. I don't think it allows for... for but that, yeah. So it's really a technological question. And I think the technology has technology has an ideology. In other words, you know, I think there is one view that technology is sort of, you know, a hammer is a hammer and it's neutral. It's what you do with the hammer. And I'm not sure if that's true.
0: I I feel like I'm coming off as like a TikTok representative, like promoter or something. <laughs> but I don't know if you know about this, but I I mean, I'm sure you have because it's a big thing. But like book talk is a thing now Mm -hmm. and it's mainly I mean, I'll admit it's not like high caliber reading at all. It's mainly like romance books, fantasy books, like that kind of thing. I've yet to see a nonfiction creator go like main mainstream on book talk. But it is interesting that this social media platform is ending up promoting reading physical reading and you know this author colleen hoover who writes a lot of these romance books just like outsold agatha christie and like shakespeare and so it was like a crazy yeah i could be wrong about that but she outsold like a bunch of (laughs) someone crazy um (laughs) so i'm wondering like if you think that all reading is good reading
1: yeah Uh, yeah i think all reading is good reading one of i had a teacher in ninth grade the same guy who gave me um the postman book how how to watch television news and so at the beginning of ninth grade, we had some terrible teacher. I don't remember who it was even, you know, 25 years ago, but they got, they got fired after a couple of weeks. And this guy named John Goldman came to work at Beacon. Um, and he, eventually he became a colleague of mine when I came back to work there. But he's, he's the best teacher I ever had. And, uh, I love comic books. And I remember he came to class the first day wearing, uh, with the Spider-Man Uh, okay. This is going to be cool. And. Just really, you know, over and over drilled into it Just read something. And so whether, you know, comics or I love fiction, I love Ken Follett. So just another book. I love, you know, I love the Century Trilogy. I'm reading this, I think there's four books right now about um, at Kingsbridge, which is like a, a place in England. It starts in the 10th century. It's, Focused around I mean, a schedule. It sounds really boring, but it's not. And it's all Ken Follett. So, and that's $8.99 of all the books you pick up at the, the front of a grocery store. I don't even know if grocery stores have books anymore, but they used to have books at front of the grocery store. So yeah, read that. Read Ken Follett. So um you, you don't have to read the from family I think uh anything you're interested in, just to say that if TikTok is getting people to read, that's fantastic. And I don't have anything to say about that. I do think about the historian Timothy Snyder talking about Putin maybe about a year ago I saw an interview and he said something it's sort of like a throwaway but he said you know I think it's very clear that the internet for all its benefits for access to information has made life much worse and I thought okay this is a serious person saying this I have to think about it so I think quite a lot and so it's not to take anything away from you know the good parts about, you know, TikTok or Instagram, in that, you know, next people, people communicate for very low cost, but I'm inclined to also think that the the costs are much, the costs of the internet are much, much greater and the benefits.
0: That's interesting. So, so another thing, I know you talked about this on the podcast episode of yours, but it's about the internet as well. Mm. I just think that, the, your thoughts i think you said it in class too but your thoughts on chat gpt are very interesting as a high school teacher
1: okay so i go back and forth it depends on the weather of um, how i feel you know how scared i am of chat GPT. but i basically am not that worried about it in my own class i'm really concerned about what it does to our, our politics and yeah, there's a lot of things I'm nervous about. But I think in terms of my classes, I'm not that worried, partly because I just, I think if you're doing good inquiry teaching, that is, you give someone a question that they're interested in and allow them to go explore the answer. And this is really important. That what's, I wish more college professors did this, but our job as high school teacher is not to give kids the answer, because we don't really know the answer. And I think maybe college professors are in a better position to know their to know their subject better than you know, 99.9% of the population. But even then, I think people aren't really that interested in being told the, the answer. I think much more interesting is to say, look, here's an interesting question. I don't know what the answer is either, which is true let's go figure this thing out. And if you do that, and it's it's more like CSI, you're like, you're an investigator. Well, then like, there's not much need for Chat GPT. Um, especially, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the kind of projects we did in our class last year. Um, you guys made a podcast around some issue you were interested in, we interviewed three experts. You did an incredible job. You, I don't think AI would have been all that helpful there. Um, I think for the kind of papers we're asking kids to write, so much of what we're doing is teaching the research process in class. So we spend like weeks with books, taking notes by hand. Well, the AI is not going to be all that helpful there. So I think if you give people, especially real world problems that kids are interested in, you know, one idea I have for advisors here is. You know, right now in New York, there's a crisis that people are migrants, people seeking asylum are coming to New York and they can't, they don't have anywhere in the, the city's not sheltering, cannot shelter all of them, put into our mayor. So one thing I was thinking is to design advisors that you could do a ninth grade a whole curriculum around this. What if what we did is we, and our school is pretty close to, um, a, a, a not-for-profit, which is helping to give cloning to people. needed um, migrants what if we went and talked to the migrants found out where they're coming from and then you know each month you try to figure out you know let's say it's Venezuela one month what's going on in Venezuela why are people coming from Venezuela and you do a deep dive into that question I I think that'd be something that kids would remember for a long time it's meaningful because it's it's happening right now in New York City and they'd have a, a why. And I think often what's hard about consuming the news is that you don't have filters and analysis is difficult then. And you just sort of want to give the, the kids the tools to analyze.
0: Two questions. So the first thing I was going to ask was about high school teaching and why you chose to teach high school. As opposed to say elementary school or mm. middle school or even college.
1: Well, so I went to graduate school first to do to go into international development. Like I thought, I would work for somebody like Doctors Without Borders or go maybe work at the UN. And then by the end of that program, I loved the program, but I had a dinner. I was in Amsterdam. That's what the food was I had dinner with a friend from America, a, a kind of a mentor. He, you know, he really urged me to consider going into teaching and that didn't really change my mind. So I went back and got another master's degree right away and I you know, went into teaching. And um, even while I was in the grad program, I, I knew that it was something I, I probably wanted to do forever. I didn't, I don't think like I, I would never want to be a principal and I just can't imagine enjoying the job as much as I enjoy it. So I just never really, I sort of, Never really considered doing anything else. I don't think, I don't think I'd be very good at most other jobs. And in fact, you know, I've been working, you know, in one job or another since I was 16 years old. You know, mostly you know, working in sneaker stores or, or you know, a waiter, but all sorts of things. And I was terrible at all jobs <laughs> I did besides this, which I feel like I'm like pretty good at. Um, we always get better, but pretty good at. Um, I think I'd be a bad at elementary school teacher and, and, but I, don't even really know how they feel the day. It feels like the day is, you know, very long. Well. Middle school the kids are um middle school the kids are, are difficult.
0: They're and, the worst. They're awful.
1: But college, you know, I, I taught a couple of college classes uh, uh, over a couple of years. And um so in the summers. And so I would like teach weekend seniors and I went to go teach these, you know, went to go teach these college classes, which were in in Italy of an international university. What they were, they were like you know, American students who wanted to go abroad and they didn't need to get college credit. They were kids from all over the United States, you know, University of Florida, Michigan, wherever. And these were econ classes and it was night and day. The kids at Beacon were so much better than these college kids. And one of the reasons why it would be miserable being a college teacher is that the kids were just like, they had their laptops open and they were like shopping on the shopping on the, Amazon or ESPN and while the class going on. I, I couldn't like really say anything because, you know, it was a private institution and I was worried, I really wanted to keep coming back and working at the school in the summer. And so I, you know, they were like my customers. And so, you know they'd be on the phone, they didn't say much. Um, there's no parents to call when students aren't doing their homework. Uh, they were just like much more students and it surprised me how how little. And you know, some of these kids were going to good colleges too, whatever that means. And how so little, they were engaged with the world and they were nice people. But um, it, it made me really appreciate um, Beacon, in particular, you guys.
0: You think that you have a, mo- a greater impact on younger students in terms of like fundamentally kind of, you know, shaping something?
1: I have to be honest. When I you know, when I first started teaching, I really believed that the work that we did was, yeah, that I would have a big impact. And I don't think that that's true anymore. I think that the best thing that can be said for what I do when I'm doing it well is that the kids come out of the class Liking history, and they have a good memory of like that's a good class. So history is kind of interesting. I don't. I think when you're younger, I mean, you just like you have a bigger ego, you you're more sure of yourself, and you tend to think that like, what you do is going to make bigger impact. I Don't really believe that anymore. I was Also talking to a friend about you know the process of getting hired. I got hired in 2005, and I really had ideas that I firmly believed in. Things that I knew to be true, and I I came across as very confident in those interviews. I think if I were to interview today, I'd be so bad because I I think I say I you know I don't I don't even know for a lot of things. I've lost confidence, but I, I think in a way it's it's just a sign that I'm I've like read more and I I you know I just realized how thin how thin my My knowledge was Steve. I I think that makes me to go back to what I was saying before. I think in a way, it makes the fact that I'm like, uh, you know, with the kids, I'm explicit. Like, I don't know what the answer here is, but I think it may be this, but maybe not. I think that makes it so that the kids feel like, all right, let's try to figure this thing out. So maybe it makes makes me a better teacher in that way that I'm less confident now.
0: So I have two things there. So I think you're selling yourself short. I think that you do shape a lot of kids, at least experience in high school and experience outside of high school. I feel like, you know, at Beacon, you're a pretty infamous teacher and people are like, I've never
1: had
0: <laughs> Yeah, you know, like people are like, oh, I want to take Mr. Moscow's class. I had a friend, he yeah. he was like, oh, I was like, you have to go do international political economy. You have to take it. And he was like, I don't know if I want to do a hard class during second semester. And I finally convinced him. And and he was like, I don't think he's gonna be able to be a life-changing teacher. And, and he came out of that class being like, I get it. Like, I get what all the hype is about. So I want I wanna give you a chance to be like, why do you think that people and kids keep coming back to your classes? And you know, they're not easy classes. It's not like they're an easy A. So what what do you think makes you? A good teacher, I guess, is what
1: I'm asking. Okay, oh, very, very nice to hear. 1st I should say, well, let's, yeah. If we start from the premise that I'm an okay teacher, I'm a great teacher. I think then I would say, I, so I have, um, I have a podcast. That's not what makes me a good teacher, but just to say, I have a podcast where I interview economists about economic issues uh, that I'm interested in, articles they wrote, books they've written. But like I always go into the interview genuinely wanting to know the interest of something that I don't know the answer to and so I think that I am learning a ton in the last five years since I've been 16 since I've been doing the podcast and so in that sense I'm you know I'm, I'm learning a lot and I'm able to bring that what I'm learning to the classroom, I'm also able to, you know, so much of what I put together for you guys last year in terms of the projects was, was, it came out of my own interest. I'm like, Hey guys, like, let's, let's find the answer to this thing. So uh, I think there's that, I think, um, besides the content, I take, you know, I take people seriously. Actually I was listening to, um, Noam Chomsky, another person that I would tell people they ought to read and uh, he wrote a book he has a book of interviews, which I would start with, because again, like simple is Good. It's a book of interviews called The Essential, no, called Understanding Power. Anyway, I was listening to him on another podcast with Tyler Collins, who I like a lot, too. He's a libertarian, conservative concept. I like him a lot. And he had Chomsky on. He's very open-minded. And he asked Chomsky why, you know, Chomsky is one of the most important intellectuals of life. And he asked him, why do you respond to every email you get? And he said because i take people seriously and i thought that was so powerful and i take i really do take the job seriously and i take kids very seriously and i think maybe that comes across so i work hard but like it doesn't feel like hard work because i'm interested in stuff i Want kids to work equally hard, so I'm not. I hold them accountable, and I think people want to be held accountable. Ultimately, I don't think people want to be bored. I mean, I see it with my daughter, who just like so excited about life, so excited about exploring, so excited about learning. And then you look at like you know the average twelfth grader in the average class, the average school, they're like not that excited about learning, or about life, or whatever. And something so like okay, like there's probably lots of. Causes for that, but I think that the main cause is that like our education system is not very good. Again, for a lot of reasons, but we're kind of doing it wrong. So I hope that answers the question a little bit, but I, I think just, yeah, just like taking, taking people seriously as intellectuals. And this kind of goes back to to another important thinker, this guy, Antonio Gramsci, who's an Italian theorist, dead, but he. He writes a lot about you know, organic intellectuals, what that means and this idea that like, everybody's got that kernel in them to be an intellectual. And I, I, I firmly believe that, you know, maybe one example I've given class before, but it's you know, it also comes from Chomsky too, but it, you know, it's talking about listening to like the radio, like sports radio, and it's like incredibly insightful comments that people are making. And you know, people are not stupid. But you ask them to talk about foreign policy and they're like, well, I, you know, I don't know that's above my pay grade. I don't know anything about that. I can't talk. Of course you could, but it just doesn't feel like a, an arena where people feel like they can, they can, um, they get into that conversation, which again, I think is a problem of, of democracy.
0: For sure. I also wanted to ask going back to interviews and podcasts. Um, what And I think this also relates to, you know, what you think makes a good teacher is what do you think makes a good interview?
1: Well, the, the person I like, I really like Ezra a lot, Ezra Klein, but the person I like the most is this guy, Tyler, Tyler Cowen, who, um, I think, you know, what I, one of the things I like about libertarians, I'm not a libertarian, but one of the things I like about libertarians, is that honest libertarians really are some of the most open-minded people around, very interesting people. And Tyler Cowen is very interesting. So one, getting people on who are, who are, And I made this mistake early on, but I really try to avoid it now. Getting people on who are, who share, who have a worldview that may not be your worldview, is really important, and um, who will challenge you. And there's nothing more boring than listening to a podcast where, you know, people are basically just confirming each other's ideas. So I I think Tyler Collins does a great job. One... You want to find and, and Ezra does a good job finding people, really interesting people in, in different fields. But one of the things I like about Tyler is that he gets someone on and he asks them about their whole body of work. And that's something I don't do with my show. Um, I really usually ask them about a, a specific book or article they've written. But he, you know, he spends you know probably months reading everything they've done and then saying, look, how do you feel about this? What do you think about this? Um, I also, one of the questions I really like, um, and I started to ask my guests this, is what do you think you're wrong? About? And the kind of answers, when people are being honest, the kind of answers you get are you know, are fantastic. I, I give you one quick example. I was asking this guy who's a medievalist, who studies medieval economics and, and feudalism. And I was asking him, you really? what's the thing at the end What do you get wrong? And he said, okay, so. The biggest problem is, is that being able to tell a coherent story about what is feudalism or what were the Middle Ages. Well, it's actually impossible because feudalism was really different, you know, say in Italy than it was in England. And the problem as history teachers or professors or writers or whatever, or podcasters, is we have to come up with a coherent story to tell people. Otherwise, like people will. In or they won't listen to you. You can't come into a situation and say the thing is too complicated to explain. You have to give people a story. At the same time, every time you're giving people a story, you're misleading them a little bit because life isn't a coherent story. So, but but that's the way people remember it. And so, what he was saying, you know, we're actually lying to people when we say this is what X is, but. It's um, it's it, it, it's a challenge that it's all, you know, all the is all in all stories face.
0: So I'll ask you, what do you think you're wrong about? Oh,
1: I'm, I'm wrong about so many things. Um, I don't know. I mean, like one thing I've been thinking about a lot today in these days is the, pro- the story of profitability. I'm not sure that's the answer you want, but just like I don't know. I've been I you know sometimes I teach. That profitability has been low since the neoliberal era. I actually don't know if that's true. So much of what I read says it's not true, and then lots of what I read says it is true, but I teach it anyway like this for like capitalism. I, I've been teaching for the last 18 years, and maybe this maybe is a better example I've been teaching the story of capitalism as I'm not gonna get into it, but as basically starting with 1492 and this an inflation problem, silver coming back to Europe and so forth. And it destroys people. I don't actually think that that's the story. I think that's a story. It's a story I got from an economist named Robert Hallbrother when I was in college. But the more I learned, the more I realized that that's actually not it. But I I still teach it because I don't really know the answer, and I know that's probably wrong. But I'm not like I haven't got like I haven't like got my mind around it yet. Um, but, you know, we can go back to the beginning of the conversation. I, I don't know if having kids read the New York Times is a good thing. In the end, I know a lot of kids, their mental health suffer. I don't know if, you know, my homework policy is a good thing. I give homework every night and kids have to cheer it on time. Um, I'm not sure that that's the best way that kids learn. I think people resent that. I think people like the class when they like it in spite. Of the homework, not because of the homework. So, look, i don't like, I could be wrong about so many things. Um, I there are big disagreements. I'd say with teachers that I like very much about the role of the teacher. I strongly believe that our role is not to tell people like like this is the truth. There are, you know, I tend to think that most things we can debate. Um, whereas a lot of great teachers believe that like. No, actually, that's our job is to is to give people answers, and maybe maybe they're right about that.
0: So, and then going back to the question prior to this one, what do you think some of your favorite interviews are
1: that I've done, or, or yeah, anybody? that you've
0: done, that you've done.
1: Well, I interviewed Ola from Taiwan. That was really interesting. It was the question was about whether or not. Capitalism is always racial capitalism. In other words, could you have capitalism without racism? Like you've never had capitalism without racism. Could it be? I that was a, a really interesting one. I Had an interview with a scholar um, studied Malcolm X and looked at his economic philosophy, which is really interesting to me because um, I, you know I've read many marvels biography of, of Malcolm X I'm really into Malcolm X and his autobiography. Heard a lot about him but it was never very clear to me you know if, if he thought that ultimately socialism was the answer or whether he thought some kind of black capitalism was the answer and um and that was really interesting I interviewed uh, a pretty big economist named James Robinson about um the role that the Reformation had on um, capitalism on establishing capitalism where, like, the, the English crown took away property from the Catholic Church, and in those places where the most property was taken away, you tended to have the emergence of private property and capitalism faster. And that was a totally new way to think about um the origins of capitalism. I'm really interested in the origins of capitalism, and on that note, I talked to um, a, a scholar, uh, Adam Gedichi, at the University of Chicago wrote a really interesting book about world, called World-Making After Empire. And a lot of it focuses on the historian Eric Williams, who makes the famous argument that capitalism, that slavery started capitalism. You couldn't have had capitalism without slavery. And she was really interested to talk to, too, particularly because I'm interested in Eric Williams, but also we got into a discussion about if some for some reason in the 1920s and particularly 1925 was this kind of magical year for intellectuals and intellectuals in particular from the Caribbean. And so we were sort of talking about what was going on in the Caribbean in the 20s, which produced people, you know, later you know, we became mature in the 50s, and 50s that, were, that, were, that were so impressive. And so sort of talking to me about what was special about the Caribbean. All, you know, all that was like, was, was so new to me. So again, I'm kind of, I'm not sure if I'm Doing a great job being coherent here, but those are those are the interviews that, that come to mind first for sort of changing my thinking about things. There was one more interview that was cool. There was a, there was a woman who's at Stanford, who is a big professor of finance. But i had her on, and she has a different view than I did about banking. But what was so cool about her is like this is years ago, she like. She, she she gave me her number, and and then every once in a while she would like write to me and be like, I heard this interview you had with so and so, like he's totally wrong about. I mean, it's kind of like it was so cool because what I really yeah what I really do want is somebody who who I can turn to and say like you know like you know so much more than I do about this What do you think? And so she that was really cool that I got linked up with her.
0: And so I wanted to ask why you started your podcast originally.
1: Well, so I started the podcast because a friend of mine, you know, a friend of mine, a very bright person, read the newspaper. Um, she's not an economist. She didn't take economics, I don't think, after high school. You know, we ended up having dinners where we would talk about, like, you know, very basic fundamental questions about, like, what the Fed did. You know, um, what is fiscal policy? And she was the no, you know, we should have this conversation uh, on air. We should do a podcast. And I didn't didn't know the first thing about podcasting. I had not really ever listened to podcasts. So she sort of organized everything. And we worked together for a couple of years. And then in the end, I really wanted to do, rather than have like just conversations between me and her, like do interviews with people. Because again, like I have like really limited knowledge. Like do interviews with people who can teach me things. Kind of like, in a way, I think I was kind of like, I've given myself a PhD program in economics and finance. I can interview, you know, most people, most people are pretty responsive. I can interview, you know, pretty much, not everybody, but people I'd like to talk to. Um, it, It's it's fun for me. Um, I will say this, it, I, I don't get anything from it except i satisfy my curiosity in other words like so the podcast has you know value of listeners it's like in terms of world rank, right, it's pretty high Um uh, i don't make any money from it i don't think i don't want to make money I mean, i'd be happy to make lots of money from it i guess but i don't think there's there's i, I it's not the i'm gonna uh, commercialize i don't think there'll be much there anyway i don't really get feedback from it so it's sort of like i put this thing out there i know some people are listening i don't know what they think about it um but i don't really think about that that much anymore um but i'm 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 getting uh i'm learning a whole lot so i guess that's the answer i'm I'm, I'm learning a time I, can't, I put it like this i can't believe what i didn't know before i started the podcast i i'm sort of embarrassed that i was even allowed to teach um the podcast because I, I I just did not know so much.
0: My last question, and I frankly I don't think you're going to answer it, so okay. I'm putting that as like the preface, and you don't have to answer it by any means. Okay. But I also yeah. think you can guess. You think you have a guess?
1: I oh, don't know. I don't know what you're. Gonna okay.
0: Say. Um. I think everyone at Beacon would be really mad at me if I didn't ask this question, so I think I have. Okay. To um. Right. What is your political ideology?
1: Okay. I don't think I'm going to answer it in a way that's going to make you happy. But I will try. To, so I am not a fascist. <laughs> Let me put it like this I am really attracted to the ideas of people like Noam Chomsky and George Orwell. I really like Orwell a lot. I really like Angela Davis a lot. I'm really interested in, in anarchism as a political ideology. In a charter, I've done research projects where I sort of looked at Spain in '36 when when Catalonia was anarchist, and tried to study the economics. I, I think on a personal level, I don't have the constitution. Like, I don't think my personality fits real well with anarchism because I'm I'm really into like discipline and control. Like my classroom is not the Brooklyn Free School. I think I'd have a really hard time. And that's you know that's an anarchist model. So I think I'm attracted to the idea. I don't know if I'd be all that happy being in a you know being Brooklyn Free School for example. But you know I've, I've been doing a bunch of research about post-emancipation Brazil. So Brazil becomes the last country in the hemisphere to end slavery in 1888. And questions sort of what happens to people who are enslaved after slavery and I really only been focusing on the Northeast. I don't know much about the rest of the country. But the Northeast, a lot of people find themselves in a situation where they're forced to work on the same plantations and the same people they were working before under slavery. Now they're getting paid a small wage. But a lot of people decide to run away into um, basically into swamps, swampy areas where it's hard to be caught. And they create these communities where jobs which are basically anarchist communities. They're stateless. Um, there's you know, president. And they're kind of they're kind of beautiful examples of how, how people might live, and they're not a solution for you know for the world's problems, but it's exciting to study that. I'm will just say I'm very, very concerned that we are. We're in a, a new fascist age and that we're not prepared for it. And that's, I think, one of my biggest fears. And then on another, so first of all, I have to be careful about how much I reveal. I, I'm more, I'm probably more conservative about a lot of issues than, say, typical beacon kid. But again, I think that's just like my personality, my constitution. So, yeah, I don't, know, I don't think that's gonna make anybody satisfied. But and I'll just you know, in terms of my podcast diet, you know, it's basically sports podcasts: Tyler Cowen who's in the right wing, Ezra who's in the center or liberal, and, and Doug Henwood who's a radical, a left wing radical. And those are the three, those are the three podcasts I listen to most frequently, and I I get a lot from all of them. Maybe the most from Tyler, who's in the right wing, but it's so funny. It reminds me actually of a story I. I have a good friend whose mother was in Spanish Parliament some years ago. She's in a uh, very, very left-wing party, the most left wing party in Spain at the time. And I was living in Madrid for a summer and she was there in Parliament. And so she used to invite me to lunch and she used to like, you know, hang out. It was fun. Like I'd go to Parliament before I go swimming, or they get the swimsuit on and backpack, and we'd be eating like the lunch And she was telling me. You know, it's just like high school. Like the conservatives sit with the conservatives, but she was like, I-, I hate sitting with the left and the liberals. She was like the best, the most fun people are the conservatives. I just, they're just like great. I like, we go, they go on like trips together. Right? And I, I think maybe I'm a little bit like that too. Some of my very very close friends, um, I think, would freak speaking kids out by how conservative they are. So, yeah.
0: But on the other end of that, you do spend your whole day with a bunch of extremely liberal students.
1: Well, liberal in some ways, right? Like, I think that they are, look, most Beacon kids end up going to, lots of Beacon kids, I don't know most lots of Beacon kids end up going to, um, you know, elite private colleges. I think if they were very liberal, they might, you know, they might consider the public option. You know what magazine you might be interested in, other people might be interested in, they only have one edition. But it's called uh, Hammer and Hope. Olufemi Taiwo was instrumental in helping start it. And there's some really good there's some really good articles in that edition that people might like a lot. Maybe it helps more also the things that I'm reading. I really like the Black Agenda Report. It's a website. So like in terms of the, the sites that I go to in the morning, when I go to the Times and Box, but also Colin's blog, marginal revolution. To get in terms of the more right wing, and the links there are more right wing. But I, I like the Black Agenda Report a lot. I like Jacobin magazine a lot. I like a website called Developing Economics a whole lot. It's um, heterodox economics, from mostly from the UK. Uh, but they they have great stuff. Open Democracy is a, a wonderful website. Z Magazine, which is Chomsky's magazine, is also great.
0: So why do why do you think you've stayed at Beacon this whole time?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I first of all to go back to talking about that experience I had at college teaching and how much I appreciate you guys. Just like overall, it's just really nice kids. I everybody's so nice there, and you're you're, you guys are nice kids, and guys work really hard. You're really smart. I had a friend. I don't know if you were in the class this year. A friend from USC. She was a professor. She came to talk. Yeah. She came to talk to the kids and she went back to USC and she told all of her friends and all of her colleagues at USC, like, these kids at Beacon are amazing. And it's true, these guys are, are amazing. I went to the high school Beacon, the only high school I really do known. I don't, I don't think I'd be all that happy anywhere else. My wife always tells me I'd be very unhappy anywhere else. I shouldn't even think about because She's probably right. I'm very, very happy at Beacon.
0: You think that you would send your daughter there? Cause I know you asked me about this actually in, in yeah. the bookstore.
1: Yeah. And you know, we're going to have a son actually, um, in October. So I now, I now have to think about my daughter and my son. Well, if she wanted to go for sure, I don't know what she's going to be like or what her interests are going to be. I can only talk about myself. I think I would, I've been very happy socially speaking because you kids are so nice and I just I think I would have found a good group of friends. And I see you guys sometimes like hang out, you know, by the peers and just large groups of kids that I teach. I think, oh my, every one of these kids is so cool. i Think that there's too much work, you know, like I you know that I'm the cause also. I don't you know, I don't know the answer.
0: Thank you so so much, Mr. Moscow, for coming on and doing this. You can find Mr. Moscow's podcast, a correction a podcast at a acorrectionpodcast.com or on regular podcast streaming services, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. I strongly encourage you to check it out. Also, anything that Mr. Moscow mentioned is in the description. I've made a list because as Mr. Moscow does in his classes and apparently when he's interviewing for a podcast, he has so many references just swirling around in his head. So that's all. Thank you so much for listening.